The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you here tonight. And uh, tonight's May 30th. I always forget to give the date for our recording. And it's a series of talks I've been giving uh, based on the book, Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind and the Way. It's a nice book. If you're interested in reading along as we go through it, we're about a third of the way through now, I guess, on Chapter 8. And it's, an, it's called Introduction to Meditation. So those of you who've been coming, we finished a section that was all about sort of the nature of the mind. It's a very interesting section. And now the next section of the book, um, it's going to be about meditation practice or awakening the mind. And even though the chapter title is sort of boring, Introduction to Meditation, it's, uh, it's really about the proper attitude for meditation. It's a really good topic. And in a way, uh, it's something we don't spend a lot of time if you're like me, you know, there's a tendency, if we're not careful, when we sit down to meditate, to want to jump right into the practice, get right to it, or to get right to our being spaced out. And we don't sort of just reflect on, well, what am I, what is this about? Because if we bring the same attitude we bring to getting to work or getting our work done or taking care of business, if we bring that same attitude to meditation, we're going to get the same results we get in daily life. One of my favorite quotes that a friend of mine told me, someone told him when he was at a body, uh, he's a body worker, shiatsu practitioner, and he went to a workshop, and the person leading the workshop said, if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you've always got. And it's true. So if we just do what we've always done in our meditation practice, we're going to always get what we've always gotten in our life already. And generally, we do our practice to get a different kind of result. So. Generally speaking, you know, when we when we talk about right attitude for meditation practice, is we're leaving behind any kind of level of attainment, like we're trying to get something, move from square B to square C, or um, bring the mind to some particular state of concentration or peacefulness. Now, all of that may happen, but that's not the attitude, because if it is our attitude then it feels like striving. It feels like attachment. And that isn't stage C. <laughs> That's called attachment. And it's suffering. It's a form of stress. So right from the beginning, we want to remember it's not about attainment. It's not about getting something. And that's kind of radical in and of itself, like to sit down, to actually put aside some time in your life and then not try to get anything from it. So that's a little bit hard for us to imagine. So what, ex what exactly then do we do? Well, what's the opposite of trying to get something? Just letting things be. 
So this is, uh, this is the proper attitude, to be interested in the way things are, to be willing to see the way things are and to let things be the way that they are. And this is what we mean by the proper attitude. Here's Ajahn Sumedho. He says, many people meditate with an attitude of gaining, attaining, or achieving. It's not surprising because our worldly attitude is based on achievement. We are conditioned by our education and society to see life as something we must use in order to attain something or to become something. On a worldly level, this is the way that it is. We have to go to school in order to read and write. We have to do all kinds of things in order to become something or attain something. But enlightenment, Nibbana, is not something that we ever attain or achieve. This is difficult to comprehend with the intellect because the intellect is conditioned to think in terms of gaining. Now, this is important because it may be our intellect gets us to our meditation chair or meditation cushion, like we think, right? If I don't meditate, I'm going to grow up to be an angry old man and nobody will want to be around me to take care of me or something like that. And that's, that's just the thought. And so that thought involves like some kind of attainment, like I want to be a gentle old man so people will be willing to take care of me. But then when I get down to my meditation cushion or my meditation chair, I have to let go of those thoughts. I have to let go of the attachment or identification with those thoughts. Because that's not meditation. It might get me to meditation, but it's not meditation. So the actual path is not to try to attain, you know, being a gentle old guy, but to see things as they are, to be open to how things are. So that's why we use a word uh, often in practice, the word realization or waking up. Instead of trying to get something or get somewhere, we're trying to wake up or realize Dhamma. That's a word we use a lot, realize the way it is. Dhamma actually has two common ways of being translated. One way Dhamma or Dharma is used is to refer, refer to the Buddhist teachings. And then the other way, it refers to the way it is, which is basically what the Buddhist teachings point to. So either Dhamma means that which points to the direct experience of how it is in the moment. How it is not colored by our concepts of how it is. Like what's the experience here and now without this overlay? Like I'm at common ground and there's this group of people or I'm hot and sticky. What's hot and sticky without the thought hot and sticky? Or what's sleepy without the thought of sleepy? or whatever's going on for us now. Now the interesting thing about Dhamma, the way it is now, it's just referring to the conditions of the present moment. That's how it is now, right? It's just these conditions. And in the teachings of the Buddha, you know, they, they go into great detail. This is very important, so they have lots of ways of looking, like the five aggregates. We wake up to the five aggregates. Five aggregates is just a way of understanding the conditions of the present moment. 
The simplest way of understanding the five aggregates is mind and body. So we have body, which are the five physical senses. That's, those are part of the conditions of the present moment. And then we have mind, all the mental experiences or all the qualities of mentality in the present moment. And in the terms of the aggregates, the five aggregates, the mind is broken down into basically all mental experiences divided into four categories. And these are sort of rough categories. So we have consciousness, we have perception, and feeling. Feeling means the particular feeling tone based on the perception. So I see Mary, and that's my perception. I have that visual experience. I see Mary, and then it's recognized. That recognition is perception. You could even use the word memory. So there's perception, and then there's a feeling tone associated with that perception. So if I've been conditioned to like to see this person, then it's pleasant to see this person. If we have this history where she's always pushed my buttons, <laughs> then it's not so nice. So that feeling tone just comes hand in hand with the memory of the perception. So we have consciousness, which is the quality of uh, the capacity of knowing, and we have perception, and we have feeling tone, and then everything else that happens to the mind is just called mental formations. It's basically everything else in the mind. All the other components, all the other mental components, sort of a catch-all phrase. So the Buddha divided the mind up into those four categories, and then the fifth aggregate of the five aggregates is just the body, the five physical senses. So this is just a way to understand the, the present moment conditions. All of these conditions share this characteristic of coming and going. Right? There's nothing that doesn't keep coming and going. And when we look at any condition, like this, let's just take the visual experience we're having right now, or your perception of the visual experience you're having right now. So either the perception or the visual experience, it's constantly changing. There's nothing solid or substantial about it. Our perception is constantly changing. Our visual experience is constantly changing. Same with sound, same with the tactile experience, same with every part of our present moment experience. So often we think of Dhamma the way it is as not self. And this is kind of tricky, and this is part of the right attitude. So when we sit down to meditate, the attitude we cultivate is that everything that's being known is just a condition being known. And as a condition, it's not personal. It's just something being known. Even the most personal feeling or experience that we might have, like, you know, you guys don't like me, or nobody's paying attention to me. So we might have a personal feeling with a lot of emotion, but that's just something being known. It's just a collection of conditions that are being known. You know, those conditions have specific characteristics, particular flavor or tone, but they're just something being known in the moment. And do you see how that, that makes them, when we see conditions in that way, they're impersonal. Do you ever look in front of the mirror 
you know? And, you know, most of the time when we're looking in front of the mirror, it just seems like, well, that's just Mark there. Hopefully you don't have that thought. You have another thought. But that's the thought I have. That's just Mark. (laughs) But if you just relax there sometime when no one's looking, shut the door, even lock it, and then just stand and get really relaxed in front of the mirror. And just gaze, but not looking at anything. You know, you're not looking at acne or your moles or, you know, whatever. The eyes are just the, the visual... The gaze is just relaxed, just receiving the visual form. And you'll see that visual experience, which when we're not paying attention seems so much like me, when we're, when we're paying attention, which means we're relaxed. You can't actually be mindful without being relaxed and interested at the same time, right? Those are the components of mindfulness, being really, the mind is really at ease, but also the mind's really bright, interested in what's going on. So if we do that in front of a mirror, you'll see this amazing transformation from that's me to it doesn't have it doesn't have a concept associated with it. It's just a visual experience. It's a condition, a present moment condition. Seeing is like this. That's how it is. And it's a little freaky because it's not what we think it's me. And so when it becomes just a condition, the mind wants to leap back to, well, no, 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 that's me. It wants to fix. It wants to take the perception and, and kind of contract around it. Oh, yeah, that's me. I recognize me. And I'm looking a little older or a little tired or I'm looking good. But we have some sort of way of fixing on that experience. And we do this all the time. You don't have to sit in front of a mirror to begin to notice this. But that's an obvious place where you can notice that. And then just play there for a while, five minutes or so, and let your mind go back and forth from being really relaxed, soft gaze, see it as an impersonal condition. Seeing is being known. Seeing is like this. Just seeing. Not identified, not fixing, not attached. Just shape and color, form. And of course, there will be perception, but not getting hooked by the perception. Just let the perception, the recognition of it, of the image, be what it is. And then we get a sense of what it means to meditate. Because that's exactly what we're doing with the breath and with thoughts that come up when we're sitting and difficult sensations that arise when we're sitting. We're trying to have that cool, open, equanimous way of relating to any particular condition. And this is called uh, Dhamma. When we see things as Dhamma, it means we're not confused by what's being seen or felt or known in the present moment. There really is a coolness. The coolness is just a word, of course. But coolness stands for the lack of agitation in the mind. The mind's not agitated by what's being known. It's not reacting to what's being known. It's just receiving what's being known. We've all had this experience to different degrees. Even today, probably, we've all had, at least we've all been in that direction. Just like, probably today, we've all been in the other direction, where the mind is really reactive to what's being known. 
in a sense, it, if something is known, it grabs a hold of it in a sense of it turns that experience into a concept, and then the mind fixes on the concept, and it sort of like one moment of fixing on a concept leads to the next moment of fixing on a concept. We're sort of in this train of thoughts, and the mind is gripping or clinging or grasping one thought after the next. And we call that probably ordinary mind, you know, which is very stressful and uh, hard to bear. Hard to bear just means it's dukkha, it's suffering. It's hard to bear. So this is what Ajahn Sumedho says about these aggregates. In this chapter 8, these are what we are not. And this not being anything is what we mean by anatta or non-self. Right? So he's talking about the khandas, the five aggregates. These are what we are not. Right? Because when we observe the conditions in the present moment, when we observe sensation in the body or sound, when we observe emotion or thought, the various aspects of the mind, they're just things being known. Right? So is that is that is it proper to call them self when they're just something being known? So in Buddhism we don't call them self. We call them conditions being known or non-self. Everything that you can perceive and conceive, uh, know through the senses or think with the mind, everything mental and physical that has a beginning and an end, that arises and passes away, is included in the five heaps or the five aggregates. The five aggregates include the whole universe that we perceive and conceive through our senses. So in Buddhism, we try to make this distinction. Everything that's being known is a condition. A condition being known. An impersonal condition being known. Something that comes and goes. And the Buddha would say something like, well, does it make sense to call something that comes and goes myself? Like if I just had a thought, boy, it'd be great to have ice cream. Does it, is it seem, you know, and that thought came, and then maybe it was followed by embarrassment. You know, like, oh, I already had ice cream today, and I need more ice cream. And and then we realized we had that thought. Now, is it appropriate to say that that thought is me? It was just a thought, a conditional phenomenon, meaning that that thought arose because it got triggered in some way, and it kind of flashed through the mind, and then the next thought came up and flashed through the mind, and then the next thought. So we don't take thoughts as self, we don't take sounds as self, we don't take sensations as self. They're just things being known in the present moment. They're Dhamma. And so this is interesting because in terms of the proper attitude for meditation, then we see so much of meditation practice is about opening to the conditions, opening to what is not self. Right? We're just opening to what's not self. And that's really interesting because when we're not meditating, what we're doing out of habit is the mind is turning everything into self. Right? We're kind of relating to things as self. We have self-experiences over and over again. 
even if I'm very much fixated on all of you, that whole idea of all of you out there is based on the sense of me here. You know, seeing you as other depends on the sense of me here. You're not this. So even that experience of like, oh, you guys are out there and you could never understand me, even that is, a, is selfing. But when we practice meditation, then we sit in a, a room full of people like this, and all kinds of things come up. We might feel a little self-conscious. We might feel like, this is not the kind of group I want to hang around in, or this is exactly the kind of group I want to hang around with. But whatever we're having, those are just thoughts that can be known. So if we're, if we're being mindful as we're here, and those thoughts will naturally come because that's what happens when we're in a large group of people, we have thoughts, then but if we're being mindful, then those thoughts don't have to be personal. They don't have to be self. They can just be thoughts, conditions that are being known. So normally, when we're in a, in a worldly sense or in an ordinary sense, we're mesmerized by the mental and physical conditions. We're mesmerized by the experience of the body and mind, fixed on it. And the way we fix is we see things in terms of self and other all the time. And so meditation, the right attitude of meditation, is to not do that. <laughs> so to not do that means we have to open to the conditions of the present moment as conditions. They're just things being known. Um, I'm trying to remember this phrase that one teacher uses. Impersonal conditions rolling on, something like that. You know, just the unfolding, the natural, lawful unfolding of mind and body conditions, mental, physical conditions rolling on lawfully, naturally, and also impersonal, conditionally. Now, the more the reason we want this attitude is having this attitude of seeing the present moment conditions as conditions, as dhamma, as opposed to as self, means that uh, we begin to open to the unconditioned. And then the metaphor that's usually used here, and many of you have heard me use this metaphor before. So if we're sitting here meditating, like, you know, you can even meditate while you're listening to a talk. Meditation just means that the mind is practicing being open to the present moment conditions as conditions. Not adding things, not fixating on any of the conditions, but just letting the conditions of the body be conditions, letting the sound of my voice be a condition that's being known, the visual experience be a condition that's being known. And if we're in that mode, that means the mind isn't fixing on any of the conditions. It's like open. Conditions are happening, sensations are happening, sounds are happening. Even the understanding of what's being said, you know, what's being heard, that's also happening. So meaning is arising in the mind. Concepts are arising in the mind. But all that is held in a very light way. The mind isn't fixing on anything. And what that does is it opens the mind to, you could say, another reality. But I don't want to be dramatic about it. But in a way, it is a different reality. But because it's 
just because it's another reality doesn't mean it's something obscure or weird. It's just something we tend not to notice because we're so fixed on the particular conditions at the moment. So the more that the mind is in a mind uh, in the place of mindfulness, openness, not fixing, not attaching, not identifying with what's being known, but not being dull. So the it, it's knowing, it's just not fixing on what's being known, then what comes into view is the unconditioned. This is Nibbana. That's what the word Nibbana means, unconditioned, meaning it's not those conditions that are being known. And so the metaphor that's usually used is the difference between the activity in this space, like you could say the space of this room, there's activity, my hand's moving, you know, our blood is being pumped and the fans are twirling. And there's all kinds of activity. The activity of the sound of my voice. So there's the activity of the room and then there's the space of the room. Now, our minds, our normal worldly mind, is uh, in, the, in the habit of fixating on the activity of the room. And we're so fixated on the activity of the room that how often do we actually notice that there's space? There's space here. Now, we can actually be mindful of space. But the way, the path to be mindful of space is not to fixate on what's going on. Right? That's how we know space. So just try that for a moment. they always say like uh, you know you could talk to a fish if you could talk to a fish and you ask the fish to describe water it wouldn't know what you're talking about a fish doesn't know water and in the same way an ordinary human being we don't know space or the unconditioned doesn't mean we're not living in it <laughs> doesn't mean that it isn't uh, essentially who, what we are. It just means we don't know it. We're not awake to it. And so the path, you know, the Buddha calls the path bhavana. Bhavana, usually we translate as meditation or mental development. Basically what we're doing is purifying our view. We develop tranquility and insight in order to purify our view, our regular view is to fixate on the conditions of the present moment, like our thoughts. And so we cultivate calmness and clear seeing in order to purify, to overcome that view and to replace it with no view or the view of openness, not fixing. And the more we cultivate that openness, the more we recognize what's always been here. This is why this is a path of non-attainment. We don't need to do anything. We don't need to get anything. I remember so often when I would do long retreats at Insight Meditation Society, IMS in Massachusetts, one of the main Vipassana centers, retreat centers in this country, 
And Joseph Goldstein, one of the teachers I worked with, would often say to me, it's already here. You know, he would notice some kind of striving in my meditation practice and my, you know, as I reported to him what was going on in my practice, how I was practicing. And he would often say something like, well, it's already here. It's already here. You know, when we hear that, you see how it helps us relax. Because otherwise, if we don't have this, that idea when we meditate, then our mind tends to fixate on something like our mind wanders, and then we fixate on, oh, my mind's wandering. Right? And we take it as self. I'm a bad meditator because my mind's wandering. So we're locked in. We're, we're totally oblivious to space in that moment. Right? The mind's fixed on a particular condition. Let's call it judgment. Or maybe we're sleepy. And then we're fixed on that. So we're trying to let the conditions be the conditions. In order to be, in order to wake up to the unconditioned, to space, the space of the present moment, let's say, we have to practice not being attached to the conditions, to the five aggregates. Or even simpler, because you don't need to learn these concepts. I mean, they're, they're, they can be helpful. You can just call it mind and body. That's really with the five aggregates, and they just divide the mind into four categories because we want to pay attention to those four things. But basically, can we have a mind-body experience without fixing on it? That's our meditation practice. We do have a mind-body experience as long as we're alive. So we sit every day. I mean, formally, we practice every day. That's the idea, at least. And we're practicing not fixating, not attaching, identifying with the unfolding mind-body experience. We're not trying to stop it. It's perfectly fine to have a mind-body experience, even a despicable mind-body experience, like having a lot of negative thoughts or really beautiful thoughts. But whether they're beautiful or negative, we practice not fixating on them, not attaching or identifying with them. We just let the conditions be what they are. Mental or physical phenomena coming and going. That's what it is. And that's what we begin to open to space. So I'll read a little bit what Ajahn Sumedho says here. Page 85. So he says, it's only when we let go of thinking, talking, considering, and imagining that we become aware and notice the space in the room. When we attend to it, we see that space is peaceful and boundless. Even the walls of the room do not limit the space. It's the same with the mind. The mind is unlimited and has no boundaries. It can contain everything. Yet we bind ourselves to the limited conditions of the mind, our ideas, views, opinions. There is room enough in space for every theory, opinion, and view. They all arise and pass away, and there is no permanent condition. So there is room enough for everybody and everything, <coughs> for every religion, every political view, every thought, every type of human being. And yet humanity always wants to control and limit and say, only these we allow, and those do not have the right to be here. 
trying to possess and hold on, we bind ourselves to conditions, which always takes us to death and despair. Right? I mean, you don't have to think of physical death, even if we bind ourselves to our particular opinion, right? And then, you know, everybody disagrees with us. Well, that's called death. I mean, we have that attachment to that opinion is sort of being beaten up and destroyed. It doesn't hold up, and it hurts. Or if we get attached to some, you know, sitting really still, and then after 30 minutes the body gets fidgety. You know, and if we're really attached to being still, then it's a big problem. So when we begin practice, the nice thing about this, what we're calling the appropriate attitude for meditation, is that we don't need anything special. Right? We just start our practice, we sit down comfortably, cultivate a, a feeling of wakefulness as we sit. So here we are sitting, and we open to what's ordinary. We, this is a great thing, because in order to move toward freedom, we have to work with the ordinary experience of the present moment, the conditions of the present moment. We don't need any particular experience. Because all we're doing is learning, discovering it's possible not to fix or get attached or identified with the particular conditions. And any particular conditions will do. So if we're in a real frump on a particular day, it's just as useful to sit and open to those conditions and to practice not getting identified or caught up in those conditions as it is those days where we feel really peaceful and calm. In other words, we could get just as attached and caught up with peacefulness and calm as we could get caught up with anger and any other sort of afflictive emotion. Because a lot of times, you know, we fool ourselves. We think, oh, I'm in a bad mood today, so I'm not going to sit. But the freedom that arises when we don't get caught in those that experience is just as freeing just as wonderful as the freedom that arises when we don't get attached to calmness or peacefulness. It's just like uh, as soon as we understand that the activity is the activity and the space is the space. And we don't have to worry. See, they, the activity is only a problem when we forget the space. Because if we forget the space, then all there is is activity. And then the activity gets really important. If all I think I am is the content of my mind, then it really matters whether my mind is sort of noble and beautiful and like all I have in my mind is gratitude and patience and kindness and, and wisdom and compassion. you know. And then if I'm attached, and then all of a sudden some other kind of mind state arises, like pettiness or miserliness or whatever, then, you know, I can get really upset because I don't want to be somebody who's stingy. I don't want to be somebody who's mean. And there it is, meanness. But if we're aware of space, then we can be spacious when negativity arises. We can be spacious and non-attached when beautiful mind states arise. And you see how this is different than how we normally think of like becoming holy would be. 
normally we think becoming holy would be getting rid of all the bad stuff and just having good stuff. But being free in this sense is understanding that thoughts are just thoughts, mind states are just mind states, physical sensations are just sensations, sounds are just sounds. And in a way, in not being confused by the particular conditions of the moment, we realize in little glimpses at first, we realize the space of the present moment. And as Ajahn Sumedho says, that realization is, is spiritually healing. It's the experience of wholeness and fullness and peace. And we didn't have to do it. We don't have to get anything. We don't have to become somebody in order to wake up to that. We just have to, in one moment, be not confused by the particular conditions that are arising in that moment. Any moment will do, even this moment. Not being confused by the particular mind states, particular body experiences that are arising and going right now. Just to not being confused by that, naturally, if we're awake, we'll notice this quality of spaciousness, wholeness, peacefulness. This is not something the mind has to manufacture in any way. It's simply there when the mind isn't small, fixating on a particular condition. As soon as the mind isn't small like that, it recognizes you know, the largeness, I guess we'd say, the space. So as we kind of invest in the ordinary, the present moment conditions, then we one of the mechanisms we really get to know, and I'm sure a lot of you know this because you've been sitting for a while, is we get to know this mechanism of attachment. You know, the movement, as Ajahn Sumedho calls it in this chapter, the movement of desire. And it's really the identification or attachment to desire. So this is the essence of not getting caught. So I, I, what I've been talking about is, you know, if we could just be open and, and unattached, not attached with the conditions of the present moment. But what's in the way of that is there's something very seductive, and we can call it attachment or craving. But it's this movement in the mind that's very seductive. Joko Beck calls it the promise that's never kept. So there's a thought, a kind of mind state that says, if only, if only, if only I could get rid of this pain in my knee, if only it weren't so hot, if only I could understand what Mark was talking about. <laughs> you know, if only I could be enlightened, you know, we have some idea of what that might mean. If only I could get to that beautiful concept I have in my mind, become that vision of enlightened mark, whatever that might look like for us. So this movement in the mind we call desire. It's like wanting to become something. It's the opposite of meditation. Because meditation is about opening to the conditions, not picking and choosing, not thinking that the conditions have to be different than this before I'm going to open, before it's going to be okay. And desire is saying, this is not okay. 
I need something else. I need to become something else. I need to get rid of this or I need to get to that before it's okay. You see how they're just the opposite. So the, one of the key things we open to in the present moment as we learn, you know, we're just there with the breath and let's say we're getting, we're having some uh, success in practice in the sense of we're aware of the sensations of the breath, but we're just seeing the breath as a natural condition, you know, these con- the conditions of the breath coming and going. And it's just like the flow of the breath. And, and we're starting to notice a sense of calm and peacefulness and wholeness and spaciousness as the breath is allowed to just be what it is. And then we see the force of desire. Oh, I finally got it. I know how to meditate, right? And the mind starts to fixate. It gets small. It like sees that thought as self. And so that's what we want to pick up because that's what knocks us off. That's what breaks or destroys our practice is we get identified with the movement of desire. And so the trick is to let desire just be desire. It is a force. It is a movement that we can just let it move through us. The desire to be enlightened, the desire to be a better meditator than the person next to us, the desire to, you know, wish there were no traffic, you know, to practice at a meditation center where there wasn't any traffic sounds. Or someone was complaining about the bird sounds the other day. <laughs> but they were really bad in March. I, I think every March there's some migration. No, really. It's amazing. Someone came up to me after a Wednesday or Sunday night and, and he, said, uh, he said, I kept thinking of the movie The Birds. <laughs> And they were allowed. I mean, these uh, sparrows, I think, they just kind of, it was like three dozen, I think, in the arborvitaes out here. The neat thing about desire, like really beginning to recognize desire, is there's only one way to notice desire, and that's for the for wisdom. Only, Ajahn Sumedho says this in this chapter, he says something like, only wisdom can know craving or desire. So, in order to see that movement without identification, we have to be that space of the mind. We have to sort of be coming from the place of wisdom or non-attachment, which is that space, the non-identification, the non-attached way of being. So this is, this is another reason to get interested in the movement of desire and to practice seeing it. Because if we can see desire without, if we can see desire clearly, which means without getting caught in it, then, then we, we will have begun to understand what practice is really about, like what that spacious, equanimous way of being actually is. And then we can just start taking it into our life. It's not just about our sitting practice. But we try to bring it up all day long. No matter how caught up we are, in the next moment, we can just look at the experience of being caught up as uh, impersonal condition being known in the space of the present moment. Right? Because remember, it never matters the particular conditions. Any set of particular conditions will do because that space is always here. So I want to leave it here so we have time to hear from one another. If you have any questions about the talk tonight or 
any experiences from your own sitting practice or your own daily life practice that seems relevant to the talk tonight that you'd like to bring up? What comes to mind? Um, Doug. The, uh, so one thing that wasn't actually said here was what knows. Mm-hmm. And one thing I find myself getting caught on is wanting to know, uh, wanting to know that with some specificity or clarity, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, being completely open to the fact that there is just knowing. Yeah. Yeah, but it's always the ego who wants to know. Yeah, wants to grab a hold of it. Right. And it and it always will fall on its face. It will always be stressful to do that, to kind of invest in that activity of wanting to know who knows. But the way to know who knows is to realize that way of being. But if you want to conceptualize it, to sort of define it, that will always miss the mark. So we, it's like, you know, I think we were talking about last week and you commented on it. You know, there are moments of freedom, but there's nobody who's free. And if we try to be the person who's free, we'll be frustrated and stressed out. But it doesn't mean that there isn't freedom. Other thoughts people have? I really like the way that you talk about whenever you talk about the no-self. For me, I know it's not for everyone else or everybody, but the notion that there is no self, even if it isn't, there's no no self and there is self. I don't understand the duality of it. Even if it isn't, I focus on that. I focus on just feeling the thoughts coming up and, and nothing attaching to it. It seems to make, seems to relax me even Yeah. And, and I, that's a really good point, that the concept of non-self or anatta in Buddhism isn't meant to be like an absolute truth that we believe in. It's actually a skillful means. It's a practice instruction. It's like we're practicing not taking things as self because it's a very uh, useful thing to do. It has a good benefit. So don't, it isn't something necessary to discuss with your friends <laughs> or even with your Dharma friends, you know. Although sometimes it can be useful to reflect on it, but it's really something to put into practice, like to actually see our experience in any moment as not self, which just means we're seeing it for what it is. It's just conditions being known. So it's really a practice instruction, as Jim was pointing out. And not, but if we think about it, we tend to get all caught up because it's it, it's a confusing thing to think about. Like, what do, what do you mean there's no self? I mean, this is self, and in a way that's true. I mean, it's very appropriate in conventional language to say, yeah, this is myself here, sitting here, having this, t- giving this talk. Um, but as a practice instruction, it's quite powerful to practice. Uh, not taking conditions itself, but just see them as conditions, just know them as conditions in the moment. That's very potent. It really changes our way of being in the moment. And then we have a sense of 
what the Buddha is pointing to when he uses a concept like not-self or anatta. Other thoughts? What is the morality that, that has that caretaking sense to it? Um, there's, like, compassion, for instance, is directed usually in some way, it seems to me. There's a, um, there's, there's a, a purpose, purposeful quality to, of loving mm-hmm. that if it's not coming from the self, Well, it's just conditions. Like, observe, when you, when you really feel that a more authentic expression of loving kindness or compassion, when you see it in your heart or feel it in your body, mind, then just observe it as conditions. It's a, it's a very beautiful condition, but it's just a condition being known. And the question is, you know... That puts, that puts negative and positive action on the same moral level. Well, it depends what you mean, the same moral level. Certainly, uh, actions coming out of loving kindness would be less destructive than actions coming out of hatred. So if you're, if you're analyzing morality in terms of the results, I think you'd make a difference. But if you're analyzing the experience in a, in a, on a deeper way, then they're just conditions. But some conditions are destructive, and some conditions are supportive and healing. So usually when we talk about morality, we're talking about the effects you know, that actions have. Other thoughts? Mm-hmm. What's your name? Ben. ben. I, I'm sorry, someone... Can you talk about the relationship between non-attachments and living in a world where you need purpose to move forward? How yeah. talking about in your daily life and being Well, it goes back to uh, getting to know desire, because being alive means there's going to be desire. And uh, so the question is, can you observe or can you be mindful of the force or the movement of desire without attachment But see, not being attached to the movement of desire doesn't mean you're afraid to ride that movement, meaning to sort of let that movement, it arises in the mind. Desire arises in the mind. If the desire, as it's arising in the mind, is seen as being pure, like this goes back to what Doug was just saying, coming from a wholesome place, like let's say trying to take care of your life, Right? So there's desire arising, and it's really coming out of wanting to take care of you and your family. Then that force in the mind can be taken right into action. So being free of attachment means we're not attached uh, to either bring it into action or to not bring it into action. Does that make sense? And so if, if it's a wholesome intention that arises we just let it flow right into action and if as it's arising we see that it's an unwholesome intention we we drop we let go of the impulse to take it into action so if hatred arises in my heart in my mind i practice seeing how unwholesome that is like how conducive to contraction and suffering that is and i practice not acting on it not bringing it into words or actions.
And that just happens by seeing the, the force of desire for what it is. Basically seeing what, what it's coming out of, what intention or what view it's coming out of. So pure loving kindness is coming out of space, basically. It's coming out of the absence of self-centeredness. And so that's really trustworthy because there's no personal agenda there. And all the terrible forms of greed and hatred and violence, that comes out of a very small, fixed place, usually. Tony, do you have a thought? The, speaking from is the fact that tonight I really talked about meditation practice. And see, meditation practice is, a, is very specific. You know, there's this idea in Buddhism that the way we practice meditation is we, we're practicing freedom in a way, right? So seeing conditions as just conditions is the direct practice of freedom. But there's a lot more that we do in life. Meditation practice isn't the only thing we do. So what I heard you saying, Tony, as I understood it at least, is, is kind of pointing to there are other things that we're going to try to cultivate in life. We're, you know, purposefully, we're going to try to cultivate kindness or gratitude or, you know, or compassion. But when we formally do meditation practice, we're doing something slightly different. I mean, you could do a loving-kindness practice, meditation practice, but the kind of practice I'm talking about tonight, the awareness practice or mindfulness practice, it's, a, it's really a more, I guess you could say direct, but it's a different kind of thing where we're, we're not trying to cultivate anything. We're trying to come in alignment with the space of the present moment and not be fixed on any conditions. Even the condition, even the thought of being a really good person, we're not trying to be fixed on that when we're meditating. Unless you're doing a specific like loving-kindness meditation. But in terms of awareness practice, mindfulness practice, we're not trying to become a good person. But during your life, it might be quite appropriate to want to be a good person, you know, and to cultivate gratitude and kindness and compassion and things like that. That could be quite useful to do. And we have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.